I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and just two verses to read this morning. Well, three actually, 16 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5 from verse 16. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen. People with outstanding abilities always make a mark on us when we encounter them. And I think that this is true in so many different spheres of life, in politics and international affairs. We think of leaders who have galvanized nations. This connection, I think of Winston Churchill in our own situation, and also of Martin Luther King in America, leaders who stood out from the crowd. In music and art, I think of Mozart, who was composing from the age of five and responsible for some 600 pieces of music. I think that's mind-boggling, composing from the age of five. Or Rembrandt, who is generally regarded as one of the greatest painters and printmakers in European art. In sport, I think of Gareth Edwards, the greatest scrum half of all time. I am aware I'm treading on dangerous ground here. George Best, incomparable with the ball at his feet. I said to my son a few years back, George Best, he said, who? And uh, I don't know if anybody recognizes the guy at the bottom of the screen, if you can recognize who that is. This is a, a, a sport that's close to my heart. If you recognize who that is, shout it out. Silence. Mike Hillwood, the greatest all-round motorcycle racer there has ever been. All this is my opinion, of course, uh, and you can tell from what I've said uh, in this last slide that I was a boy of the 70s, that is, the 1970s. People who stood out from the crowd in their chosen profession. But what I'd like to speak to you about this morning is a church that stood out from the crowd, a church that stands out from the crowd. Here in the three verses that we've read together today, uh, we find a trio of characteristics mentioned that should mark out the Christian community, that should mark out the Christian church and individual Christians in the church. Here are three priorities of the Christian life that emerge from the believer's union with Christ. These things are only possible when people are in Christ, to use the Apostle Paul's favorite little designation. It's only then that these aspirations become realities in our lives. And you'll notice that the thing that all three of them have in common is that they're to be done always or in all circumstances. In other words, at all times and in all situations, Christians, churches, are to be marked out by their display of these things. Rejoicing, 
praying and thanksgiving. Now, you will quickly realize this morning that this is not the way of the world. To always rejoice, continually pray, uh, and be persistent in thanksgiving is not the hallmark of this or of any other society. Instead, people rejoice when things are going well. So, a baby is born, a wedding takes place, a promotion is obtained. But when life takes a turn for the worst, when illness or bereavement strikes, when the stock market plunges, when jobs are lost, then rejoicing is the last thing in most people's minds. What about prayer? Well, people pray when they need stuff. I, I, I don't know whether you're a bit like me in this regard. Uh, uh, the times that I pray most fervently are, are when I need things. When my back is against the wall, then my prayer life t really soars. But when things are going well, do I continually come to God in prayer? What about thanksgiving? Well, in contrast to our willingness to ask, we're not really so quick to come back and say thank you. We're like the lepers who were healed by Jesus. Only one came back to give thanks. Now, you want to notice in this passage this morning that these three things are characteristic of the model church. These are things that make the followers of Jesus stand out from the crowd, especially in a world that rarely sees them in their purest form. So, let's open the, the Scriptures then at these verses, 16 to 18, uh, and say some things about each of them in turn. Number one, rejoice always. Now, this reminds the Thessalonians how they first received the gospel, because remember that Paul says at the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 6, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. This means that the joy that was characteristic of the beginning of the Christian life is something that is supposed to continue right throughout the Christian life until its end. That's because this joy that the apostle is speaking about is a product of the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. And since that basic relationship, that fundamental union with Jesus that Paul refers to as being in Christ, is something that never changes, then he says, neither should our joy. Well, of course, this rejoice always command seems like a strange thing to us, especially in the light of our struggles uh, and our difficulties and our trials and our suffering. All of those characterize life generally and sometimes of the Christian life. But if we are tempted to think that the apostle is dealing here with a pie-in-the-sky assessment of life and the Christian life, providing an unrealistic view of what it is to be a Christian, then we need to remember that the joy spoken of here by Paul is not a frivolous, light-hearted, emotional high. It's rather a deep-seated assurance of inner joy and peace that comes from the knowledge that our relationship with Jesus is unbreakable, and our future in Him is absolutely guaranteed. And so, when Paul says, rejoice always, it's not a counsel of despair. 
because of the sheer toughness of our lives. It's simply a statement of something that is to be the ongoing reality of the believer's testimony and experience. So, what does it look like? Well, can I say that it doesn't mean that the Christian is supposed to go about with a foolish grin on their face? Uh, on their face. You, you know that if you meet somebody like that who has constantly got a big grin on their face, and they, they're always saying, praise the Lord, even at the most inappropriate of times. You find that irritating. Well, sorry, I, I find that irritating. I don't know about you, but, but I think that such a person is actually foolish. It's not just that they've got a foolish grin, but they actually are foolish. Now, I qualify this by saying that neither should a Christian go about with a sour and depressing demeanor. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I might have entered the ministry of certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. <laughs> Apologies to any undertakers in the congregation this morning. <clears throat> this joy of 1 Thessalonians 5 is not, you see, so much to do with facial expression as it is to do with inner disposition. It's something that is right at the heart of the fabric of our being and experience. We rejoice always in the knowledge of God's love for us and the sovereign control that He exercises in our lives. Now, in this uh, immediate con context, you'll notice that this exhortation follows quickly upon the apostles' prohibition in the previous section, a little bit just before this, which is a prohibition on nursing grudges and retaliation. And so, it's significant that the apostle follows that with this exhortation to rejoice always. So, Leon Morris, in his excellent little commentary on 1 Thessalonians, says, forgiveness ought to be a joyous affair with genuine Christian zest for life bubbling through. You're going to be looking at forgiveness uh, next week and submission. What, what a great combination of subjects. I don't know whether that just happened or, or it was planned. What a great combination. Here's Morris. He says, forgiveness ought to be a joyous affair with genuine Christian zest for life bubbling through. So, you say, well, that's good because uh, I, I need to work on that. You, you recognize, as, as I do, that this whole business of rejoicing always is something that, that needs to characterize our lives and uh, doesn't do so enough. But then John Stott says, it's more than just about our personal lives, because Stott says, this whole passage has to do with the context of Christian corporate worship. Now, he argues this on the grounds that all the verbs are plural, and the preceding instructions on prophecy and the holy kiss are in the corporate church setting. So, if Stott is correct in this, then what he's saying here, what the apostle is saying is, this is a call to worship God and to do it joyfully. No boring, gloomy worship services then in first century Thessalonica. That may be so, but I, I'm sure that this, the application of this can be made in both connections. First of all, to the individual and then to the local church. In either case, it's not a command to be happy. You know the little song that says, don't worry, be happy, as if we could turn that on and off like a tap. 
Instead, this is a command to remember what God in Christ has done for us and rejoice in the Lord accordingly. So, my friends in Windsor this morning, I repeat Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians, to myself and to you today. Rejoice always, or as the Old Testament puts it in Psalm 100, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Rejoice always. Then in the second place, pray continually. Well, as you read through this letter, you will discover that this is precisely what the Apostle Paul has been doing for this church in Thessalonica. For example, chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. And again, chapter 2, verse 13, we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God. You see, prayer is something that punctuates this letter. The Apostle Paul, it, prayer to him is as natural as breathing. And again and again, he interjects little prayers in his correspondence with them. Another one would be 3.11. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Now, what did that look like in the experience of the Apostle Paul? Because I suppose if we were uh, particularly literalistic in our thinking, we'd ask this question, well, how on earth do you live a life where you're praying continually? I mean, think of Paul. If he was constantly praying how could he have traveled and walked and preached and written all of the great letters that he did? So, so what does this look like? Well, it simply means that speaking to God in prayer was the natural resource of Paul's life. Day after day, at regular points and intervals, the Apostle Paul was continually praying. W.E. Sangster, the famous Methodist preacher in London in the 1940s, used to say when he woke up every morning, he would begin the day by saying, Good morning, Lord, and what are we going to do together today? Now, it seems a, a, a rather strange little prayer, but yet it's so true, isn't it? The whole of his day, he realized, was going to be lived, as Luther once put it, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. And so, he wanted to say to the Lord, good morning, Lord, what is it that you've got in store for me today? What is it that we're going to do together today? Again, if we go with Stott and assume that Paul is referring to the context of corporate worship, then we see that prayer is another indispensable element in the worship service, especially in the form of intercession. The model church will be praying, praying for fellow members at home and overseas, in their joys and sorrows, for the nation in its need, for the world in its pain, and doing this with specific focus. You see, the Christian faith has the unerring effect of turning people away from themselves to God and to others. And where that doesn't happen, we have to put a question mark over whether it really is the Christian faith. So, this prayerfulness follows on from joy in the Apostle Paul's mind. In fact, the two are very closely related because believers find in prayer the removal of barriers to joy. 
And so I want to ask myself, and I include you in this question this morning, is prayerfulness a mark of my life? Is prayerfulness a mark of my church? Because here, as far as Paul is concerned in these wonderful verses, it is a characteristic of the model church. It is a priority of the model Christian. So rejoice always, pray continually, and then the third priority or characteristic is give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul is persuaded here that God is at work, bringing all things together for the fulfillment of His perfect will. And because he's convinced about that, he gives thanks no matter what life may throw at him or at the churches for which he is concerned. Here in the Thessalonian correspondence, he gives thanks repeatedly. For example, chapter 1, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you. Chapter 3, verse 9, how can we thank God enough for you? 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, we ought always to thank God for you. Full of thankfulness. For the Christian, of course, this thanksgiving is not a stoical indifference to whatever comes. We are, after all, human beings. We know what it is to be hurt or disappointed or discouraged or defeated, but never driven to total despair, never completely cast down. The thanksgiving is not, therefore, for the circumstances, but it's for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is with us in the circumstances. You will know that thanklessness, when I put that one onto the computer, the spell checker didn't like it, but I think it's okay. Thanklessness is a chief hallmark of our world today. If you live your life on the basis of luck or chances, as as many people in our society do, you will rarely see the need to be thankful. Instead, you'll be happy when things go well, and you'll be a bit sad when things don't go so well. I'm reminded of the story of a a Jewish man who went to the rabbi, and and he said to the rabbi, Rabbi, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. We, We can't go on any longer like this. The rabbi said, take your goat and bring him into the room with you, and then come back and see me in a week. The man said, the goat? He said, yes, the goat. And so, a week later, uh, the man came back, and he said, Rabbi, it's got worse. This is absolutely unbearable. The goat is filthy. What are we going to do? He said, go home and let the goat out, and then come back in a week and see me. A week later, he came back and said, Rabbi, life is wonderful. Now, there's no goat there, just nine of us in the room. Well, you don't have to live with a goat to learn this lesson. I say that cautiously. Instead, just open your eyes. I Say to me, open my eyes and look around and see the way in which God has poured good things into our lives. Begin to appreciate more the fact that God is in control, working all things together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8. Then we shall learn 
perhaps as never before, to give thanks to Him for His wise and gracious providence in our lives. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1.21 that the failure to give thanks is actually a mark of human sinfulness. He urges believers in Colossians 2 verse 7 to overflow with thankfulness. Once again, if we follow Stott at this point, we will ensure that thanksgiving forms a very natural component of our public worship, and not just in the Eucharist, the thanksgiving of the Lord's Supper, but in song, and we've been doing that this morning already, and in prayer. Then finally, in verse 18, we notice this phrase, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here, my friends, is the highest possible authority for this teaching. It is actually rooted in the will of God. In other words, it is God's will for the Thessalonians and for the Christians in Windsor that they should rejoice and pray and be thankful, and that they should do this at all times and in every circumstance. The model church the church that stands out from the crowd. What does it look like? The answer is, it will be rejoicing always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. My prayer for myself, for my church in Ballymena, and for the church here in Windsor, and for all the churches of our association, and for the Irish Baptist College, is that God may help us to live like that today and in all the days that lie ahead.